All right, Balji, how are you doing? Good. We got that all worked always, out. There's always some audio video stuff, always something or whatever. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, we figured it out though. Yep. So I'm super excited to have you on here. Um, I've been following you on Twitter for a while. I mentioned uh, before we started, my brother is a huge fan, uh, my brother Jeff, and I'm a big fan too. I follow follow a lot of what you're doing, and I love the topic of decentralization. That's been uh, one of the prime motivators for me over the past several years, trying to get our country to move in a more decentralized direction. So you've written this new book, The Network State. And I've been reading this book. I'm curious, how long did it take you to write this book? And you're still in the process of writing it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in a sense, I've been writing this book for many years. Um, so it's, like, it's sort of one of those things you're collecting string for a long period of time and you're kind of thinking about things. And, um, you know, I, I, I think of what I got out there as a V1. So the answer to your question is, I don't know, in a sense, 10 years, in a sense, a few months, right? Um, because I've been thinking about this for a very long time, but then I sat down and I just actually like wrote it. But uh, I actually feel like about almost two X as much, or at least, at least about double the length of stuff to get in there. This is actually the very edited down version. And it's, you know, whenever you ship something, it's always unsatisfactory to yourself in many ways. And it's imperfect in many ways. And uh, for example, I've got like 20 more examples of different kinds of startup societies to include. I, I want to factor it into like a problem and solution format to a greater extent. Anyway, short answer is, I think it was a V1, 10 years in a sense to write, but also just a few months. Did it start as a book project? In other words, when you say you've been writing it for 10 years, is it just things you've been thinking about that you've written down and at some point you decided, I want to compile this into a book? Yeah. The latter. That's right. The thing is, it is. It, I've been collecting concepts for a long time. I mean, but having it in book form, because it's actually one of the things I'll talk to you about in the, uh, during this podcast is centralization, decentralization, recentralization, right? There is a utility to... Uh, whatever establishment... But there's also a utility to rebundling into a consensual new, you know, kind of rebirth, like a new order that actually people are opting into and that um, combines some of the uh, what people were trying to do in the old one and this one with the new one. You know, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, if I get the quote right, it's like the empire, the empire long united must divide, the empire long divided must unite. So it has always been right. That cycle of centralization. How does that apply here? Well, you know, uh, books are obsolete, everything, social media. Okay. So you tweet a bunch and you get a lot of concepts out there and you give a lot of podcasts and talk to people. And then you kind of find that actually, uh, you, you know, you know, that meme with Charlie, uh, pointing at all the things on the board, uh, the, the meme where it's right from, um, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia, right? That's what it's like when you're pointing somebody to, oh, look at this tweet and this one and this one. It's like, oh, it's disorganized. You know, if someone's following you for a long time, they have that full context. But for somebody new, they want a single point to go to. So then recentralization into a single URL, the networkstate.com. And then that's a deployment point for all the concepts. 
And then I can expand on that and install a lot more so that just one hook and that one mnemonic, that one deployment point, right? So it's more time efficient for the reader. And does it help your mind to do this? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. Absolutely. Twitter is more time efficient for the writer, but a book is more time efficient in some ways for the reader, right? Twitter's more time efficient in other ways. And I actually tried to make it a very Twitter-friendly book where it's like, the network say in one sentence, okay, you're super ADD, okay, the network say it in one image, in one essay, and, and so on and so forth. And I'm going to do more like the network say it in one slide deck, and the network say it in, uh, you know, one fact. And, you know, I've got a few more of those up my sleeve or whatever. So, <laughs> so what is it that motivates you? I, were you in, interested in politics as you were growing up, or is this something no. that did, cause, cause it's, it's very much a political book in one sense, right? It's about, obviously it's about, um, crypto and it's about decentralization and recentralization as you talked about, but uh, it's obviously a very political book too. So is that right. something that uh, in your adult life you've come to that it's a concern for you or you're seeing what's happening in the United States and it's, it's very concerning to you? It's, it is a political book, but it's also, I would argue, a metapolitical book in the sense that I don't end it with, like, vote for this or vote for that or, you know, and I kind of, I think, like, if somebody wants to get mad, there's lots of different things that they can get. Like, I, I, every part of the political spectrum, there's, like, some poke I probably have there in there where somebody can get mad or whatever. But, but I think the big thing is I'm not picking up, um, I, I am trying to think Z-axis here in the sense of, you know, in the Iran-Iraq war, were you on the Sunni side or the Shiite side? How about neither, right? In Protestant Catholic during the Thirty Years' War, how about how about how about neither, right? Um, and uh, can you have a different way, something that is not pulled into these sort of, you know, these zero-sum polls where one wins and the other loses, or one must fight? They're um, they're very attractive to humans in the magnetic sense because people are sort of pulled into them, right? They're meant to sort of pull people into these kind of conflicts. They're sticky in this way, right? And I'm not saying you can always avoid that conflict or escape it, but that's a big part of what the book is about to at least try to do that, um, to f- try and figure out a better way. So the answer to your question is, uh, no, I, I'm, uh, politics is downstream. Uh, you know, I only, I only cared about politics when it was something that was getting in the way of life extension, you know, like, and getting in the way, of, for example, if you're in academia and you can see where, where academic biomedicine is, did you see that my, my tweet on, um, myostatin nulls? No, I didn't see it. Mm-mm. Okay, hold on. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to RT this so that people can kind of see it. Um, I'd say just RT'd it, okay? Do you see that tweet there? Super Soldier Serum is real. It's at the top of Twitter.com. For the oh, I did see this, yes. Okay, so this is just seeing is believing, okay? And this is a particularly dramatic example. There's a fictional hook that you can map it to. On the left is a wild-type mouse. On the right is a myostatin null, Okay. And you take a look at the chest on that mouse in the second frame. Okay, that's actually insane, like the before and after. It's not actually before and after of the same mouse, but of, you know, before and after that mutation. And it's literally like Captain America, you know, before and after the super soldier serum. And you might ask, well, wow, this is a huge medical breakthrough. You know, when did this come out? Like, this could be so important for people who, you know, have diabetes or low muscle mass or, you know, like all these people are spending all this time in the gym. What if you can give them a boost? Obviously, there's creatine. There's other kinds of things out there. And, you know, you might think, oh, this must have come out last year. Actually, you know what this came out? Can you guess? You can click in front of it. What's your guess? When do you think this paper came out? This paper? Yeah. 
I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, it's uh, basically you like tell 2007. Me. 2007, right? So like 15 years ago. Okay. Right? And and it's not the earliest of these. There's so many things like this that that's this pent up wall of you know things which could get us to like potentially. I'm not saying every single one right away, but pretty quickly if we if we actually had an FDA free jurisdiction, or rather I should say a post FDA jurisdiction, because it's not like you have zero regulation. You just have a V3 and aspects of both gold and fiat. You have a post FDA jurisdiction. You could unlock 50, 100 years of biomedical innovation in like a few years. Okay. And just to give like some uh, anchor points there, because that's a big statement. If we think about if you're in 2010, someone said um, that taxi regulations and hotel regulations are holding back $100 billion in value. And of course, money isn't the only thing, but it's a numerical and quantifiable estimate of you know, like the how much value something is producing. It's, it's imperfect, but it's let's call it one measure. If you said this, you know, taxi and hotel regulations were holding back $100 billion of value, Uber, Airbnb, and also Didi and Grab and Gojek and Lyft and all, all the rest, right? Um, people would have laughed at you, right? But they were. They were so antiquated that they were actually holding back something that actually was better, not just for the customer, but also as a regulator, because the star ratings and reviews were actually better than the taxi medallions. You know, the, the taxi medallion agency is not GPS tracking everybody. If you, if you say, oh, the SEC and um, the CFTC and so on were holding back not just $100 billion, but trillions of dollars. The Fed was holding back trillions of dollars. That was not obvious before Bitcoin. It is now obvious that with the orange groves versus, used versus orange coins, these antiquated regulations holding back trillions. And so what is the FDA holding back? If the, if the taxi and hotel regulations hold back hundreds of billions, if the SEC and CFTC and these like 1930s era agencies are holding back trillions, like the FDA is holding back tens of trillions, even more than that. It's not even quantifiable. It's holding back like life extension, right? Which is the most important thing we can invent. That is by getting that post FDA zone, by building the moral case, the historical case for doing that, right? Now, as, as a pragmatic ideologue, not simply an ideologue, but also a pragmatist, right? Um, I recognize you need to build a coalition for that. A lot of people need to come behind something like that. Um, the FDA has in many ways recently sort of proved me right on things like, you know, from holding back COVID vaccines, holding back monkeypox, you know, like a lot of folks who are sort of in the center on this have seen that the FDA, for example, um, held back uh, emergency use authorizations. And by the way, I can, you know, name names, you know, it's one of the things that's really funny, by the way, is with companies, they're re reported on as it's Zuckerberg's company and it's, it's very personal and it's agency and there's a founder there and there's people who are reported on. If you'll notice with agencies, it's very rare to see the name of the bureaucrat who is ultimately responsible for a decision in the press. Okay. Yeah. This is, this is a LP where when I say it, you can see it. But if I don't say it, it's not something that's very obvious. It is always reported as an agency thing and so on. And, and the agency has tons of hit points, Right. The agency has billions of dollars. It requires lots and lots of hits to even move it a little bit. The person has far fewer hit points. And the person, you know, who's responsible for a bad decision, it's interesting that none of that actually ever comes out. It's very rare that you ever see a bureaucrat called to account, right? Um, anyway, point is, after studying all of this and thinking about this for a long time and reading every book I could on how the FDA worked and going through it and blah, blah, like, I was like, you know, honestly, all of this is actually like a sovereignty problem, 
right? I thought of it as a technical problem. I thought it was a math problem. It is those things. I thought it was a logistical problem as a financing problem. You have to finance these companies, build them, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, there's HR and there's organizations. All of those things are a piece of the puzzle. But ultimately, it's about jurisdictions. It's about sovereignty. And then you get to history and morality and politics. And so you have to actually realize, okay, you know, all these laws exist for a reason. Why do they exist for a reason? When you point to some dumb regulation of the TSA, what are you eventually hit with? Oh, the shoe bomber, right? You're hit with some history. The regulation may be stupid and nonsensical and boring, but it's based on some very non-boring instance. Somebody, you know, tried a terrorist attack. Somebody blew something up. And because of that, everybody is encased in mud and we're all slowed down for the rest of our lives. Billions of people have probably been subject to these TSA takeoff shoes things because of one thing that happened like 15 years ago, right? And it's never re-examined. It's just we're all encased in mud. And more mud just surrounds us and binds us. And we're just held in this kind of web, encased in this thing until we can't even move. And then, you know, some people, valiant people like yourself, who are much more patient in certain ways, are trying to like scoop out from within this thing and like, you know, like get a little bit of freedom from sort of within the system, right? But, you know, as Thoreau said, there's a thousand men, and I don't mean this in a bad way, by the way. I appreciate everything you're doing. I'm glad you're out there. No, I totally understand. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm uh, very cynical about politics myself, so. Okay, okay. So, so meaning zero offense to you or to any good-natured person, you know, <laughs> who's, who's like trying to do good things. You know, as Thoreau said, there's a thousand men, uh, you know, hacking at the branches of evil for everyone striking the root, right? And then, of course, different people will have a different estimate of what that root is. But I argue that, you know, often reform is not possible. And we recognize this with companies. We recognize that you could not have reformed Blockbuster into Netflix, right? There's something called the innovator's dilemma. Sometimes innovations literally cannot happen within the old institution. The game theory, the incentives, the capacity is simply not there, right? So we recognize that with companies, you know, you couldn't have done Google within Yahoo. You could not have done, um, you know, like, uh, Apple within BlackBerry, right? Just, you, just, you know, you could not have done the iPhone within it. It would not have worked, right? Um, and we recognize this now with currencies. It's actually, um, we, we, we have now proven that it was easier to found Bitcoin, to start Bitcoin, than to reform the Fed. You know, Ron mm-hmm. Paul had, you know, I love Ron Paul. Ron Paul had been talking about this his entire career, right? And gave inspiration, crucially, right? But the thing is that Ron's thing about in the Fed, um, it was actually impractical because... You know, the Fed exists for a reason. There's a certain set of power that, you know, uh, if, if you if you end the Fed, then something like the Fed will arise because people want that thing. So what you can actually do is exit the Fed, right, and build something better than the Fed. That's actually a very high bar, right? Um, and that's what Bitcoin is, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's ridiculously difficult to do. It's difficult to do technically, but it's also difficult to do in a political way because how do you even get the the bare space, the dry land, right? The bare land to do that, right? And Satoshi actually talked about this, how carving out a new space for freedom was key. And I make in the book, I'll just, I know I'm going on for a second, but I'll just make the point. Give you, uh, one of the points I make in the book is that reopening the frontier was actually something that was a difficult thing to do, but it's been done several times in the past via technology. For example, you know, like with Columbus, uh, part of the reason that, the the exploration of the new world was greenlit was because the Ottomans had blockaded the normal path to India, right? And so what that meant was alternate paths had to be sought. Leaving aside all the colonialism and so on, I talked about that in the book, just that particular thing, technology enabled an exit 
from you know that constrained environment of the Mediterranean. Um, and if you think about uh, you know when oceanic navigation became uh, easier, you know the Puritans, other folks who lost wars in England, were able to sail across the ocean because now that was actually possible. You could you you didn't just have to skim near the coast with a trireme, you could actually go across the Atlantic Ocean, which is really difficult, by the way. You know, you have to look at the stars and so on. You have no GPS. You have to somehow, like, you know, look at the waves. You have literally no landmarks around you, and you have to, like, maintain a street. That's actually very, very difficult to do if you think about it technologically. It's a huge innovation. And that reopened the frontier. There's now new land, at least from the perspective of the Europeans, right? If you think about space travel, right, in theory, that the final frontier should reopen it. The Internet reopen the frontier after it closed in 1890. And now Web3 and crypto is reopening the frontier. And so a big part of what I think about is these institutions have encased us in mud. They cannot be reformed. How do you build the exit? Historically, that's actually required technology to reopen that frontier. And that's a lot of what this book is about, is kind of just figuring out how to sort of limbo your way, Houdini your way into the exit. So do people in the United States live better off today than say in 1945 or 1991 this is what i I want to get it because 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 i think as you write the book i see a lot of pessimism about where the u.s is heading but do people but do people live better off today than say 50 years ago or 30 years ago it's a great question and uh, I think on some metrics, you can argue yes, but on some metrics, you can argue no. Okay. For example, if you take a look, I just sent you something in the, the chat that basically, um, if you, anybody who's on the call can Google, watch the country get fatter in one animated map. Okay. This is from Slate, and it's actually in 2013. It's almost 10 years ago. Okay. And you can see over like basically about 20 years, you went from something where most people in the U.S. were not obese to something where you really have an obesity epidemic. And it actually, you know, it could, by the way, in part be a pathogen. You know, ulcers were thought to be, you know, every possible cause other than H. pylori until, you know, um, the, you know, the famous experiment won a Nobel Prize. But, um, you know, it could be a pathogen, actually. It could be sugar, which I think is definitely a contributor. It could be some combination of things, people's sedentary lifestyle. Who knows, like, I should say, who knows? People know that there's obviously contributors, lack of exercise, diet, etc. But this is a quantitative, undeniable way that people have gotten unhealthier, right? And why is this actually a useful thing? In statistics, there's like four kinds of qualities of data. And you'll, you'll hear me out for a second. I know it's like a, it's a setup for something. The four kinds of data are so-called ratio scale, interval, ordinal, and categorical, okay? So what's a ratio scale variable? It's something like, meters or um, kilograms, right? If something was measured to be one meter in 1945, it's also one meter in, you know, uh, uh, 2022, okay? Um, interval scale is like, um, you know, is, is something where, uh, so ratio scale, there's an absolute zero, okay? Interval scale, only differences matter. So for example, scores on a standardized test are like interval scale, right? The ratios don't matter because you can set the midpoint to whatever you want, but the, but the differences matter. Okay. Then you have ordinal, where all that matters is whether A is greater than B is greater than C, okay? Um, and then categorical is just that two things are different, like the Baltimore Orioles and the, and the you know, Boston Red Sox are like categorical. There's no rank ordering on Major League Baseball teams. They're all just different from each other. What's my point? 
with things like prices, right? You've heard the term like inflation adjusted and so on. Dollars, prices are absolutely not a ratio scale variable. They are not comparable across time and space. So when you ask a question like your very good question, have things improved, right? You really want to go with ratio scale variables, like, for example, stature of human beings. You can show from skeletons that that actually declined for a time with the advent of agriculture before it like rose again. You know, people were in a sense healthier and better nourished as hunter gatherers. And then they became less well nourished, but more stably nourished as uh, as farmers until it kind of picked up again. Right. So they traded off like upside in some ways for like stability. Um, but the ratio scale variable of height will show you that. Right. In this case, with this map, it's a ratio scale variable underpinning the map of weight. Right. Of kilograms or, or pounds, as you will. Right. And so the reason I say this is, um, you know, if you look at graphs of ratio scale variables. Right. I'll give you a few more. OK. Another example is a room's law. Right. Um, and uh, so this is finally starting to get reversed. OK. And this is only like half ratio scale, but it's like still kind of interesting. OK. Um, so this is. Uh, the cost of getting a drug through inflation adjusted. I know I just said that's bad, but at least it's indicative. If you did a, a gold price or time price version, um, you'd probably see something very similar. You see this graph I just pasted in. So Google Irum's Law, uh, you know, March 2012. OK. And basically what you see is normally Moore's Law is saying transistor density is doubling every, you know, uh, a certain number of years. Every 18 months it used to be. And now it's like, you know, Moore's Law got hit. The room's law is saying that the cost of getting a drug through was increasing exponentially over the last 60 years. And if you adjust that for so-called time price, which is number of hours to earn a dollar, or uh, gold price, which is the ounce of gold to earn a dollar, you'll probably see something very similar. So that's showing that actually in some ways we're getting much worse, right? Far worse, exponentially worse in like approving drugs. Um, I'll give you one more graph. You know, Teal has some of these as well. Uh, so from Roots of Progress, right? Um, is a great review of Where's My Flying Car? And he shows this amazing, and that's an amazing book, by the way, Where's My Flying Car? I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Um, it's by J. Stores Hall, and it's uh, it's got these amazing graphs in there, okay? But take a look, for example, at um, the Roots of Progress review uh, called Progress, Stagnation, and Flying Cars, a review of Where's My Flying Car by J. Stores Hall. And if you go there and you scroll down to that first graph on the page, you will see there's a curve for where energy, uh, you know, he calls it consumption, but you can also say production, was going to go. And then you see it just flatlining out starting in like the 1970s, right? Somehow that future went away. And what he shows in this book is that all technological innovation since that point has been of the low energy consumption kind. That's to say, you didn't get you didn't get flying cars and rocket engines and, and things like that. We didn't get space travel. All those are energy dense things, right? They use a lot of energy, which means we need energy production. But we cut off the transition to nuclear energy because of Three Mile Island and other stupid things. Like, basically, people got irrationally scared of nuclear power. And uh, what happened as a consequence? Well, that meant that all innovation had to be in computers and things that are very energy efficient. And energy efficiency is good. But what you'll find, and he talks about this in the book, is people have this concept of ergophobia, or he calls ergophobia, where they're actually they do not like the concept of energy production. They don't think energy can be produced. They think it's fundamentally scarce. It's all fossil fuels. They just don't understand this, right? And they don't understand, like, you know, nuclear power. They don't understand that um, there's that is possible to produce effectively infinite clean energy. 
So, so just yeah, the reason I didn't want to give a flip answer is I want to give a quantitative answer to your question. On people's obesity levels, right? These are ratio scale measures where they have gotten worse over the last 50 years, right? And that has mm -hmm. to be kind of thought of as what's the root cause of that? Because, uh, you know, it is not all in people's heads that, you know, everything's actually getting better. You know, I actually kind of tweeted something today, which is, um, oh, people, when, when the term recession, you know how they redefine recession? Yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, when people use the term recession, they're back to a mythical past when things were economically better. Right. And that's kind of the way that people often say, you know, they'll pathologize the idea that the past was ever better in any way. Right. But of course, a recession means that something that was a decent economy is now like a less bad economy. You can argue business cycle and so on. But sometimes things were better in the past. And just like when you're committing code, sometimes you commit a bug and you unwind the bug. It's called git revert. It exists for a reason, right? There's undo in every application. Those are worth billions and billions of dollars. Being able to undo, go back and take a different branch is does not mean ending progress. It means let's take a step back. We went the wrong branch. Let's go a different branch, right? I think in many ways we've gone the wrong branch in society. And that does not mean like the caricatured conservative who's like, go back to the past. I'm not saying reset the entire code base to like, you know, primitive society or go back to the Bronze Age. I'm saying maybe we took a wrong turn and we should double back and take a different turn on some on some things. Yeah. But on the whole, are we better off? I, I get I know you're, you, you do make some good um, quantitative points. I think you can give lots of good examples. Yes. But but is is society on the whole better off? Are individuals on the whole better off on average? So it's an important question. I I think in Asia they are better off, right? And so humanity as a whole is better off because a billion Indians, a billion Chinese. I think it's very difficult to argue that they were better off fifty years ago, right? Um, I think it is more questionable in the West as to whether that's actually the case. And um, I think you can make the argument. I think you can make the counter argument. And I think it would depend on your coefficients and what you weighted. Well, isn't, isn't technological advancement itself uh, a sign that we're better off? Well, the technological advancement has happened in some areas, but there's also been technological regression. Things yeah. have been pushed back into the garage. You know, Teal has the, I mean, nuclear power is the biggest one. That got pushed back into the garage, right? Um, you know, and... Uh, that, that was something that could have unlocked a completely different future if we had it, right? Um, and, and the reason I just mentioned that is that is internet level in terms of how big a deal nuclear power was and is. It unlocks everything, right? And we may still get there. We may get there, but I think the reason if we get there, we get there because, uh, you know, Jay Storrs Hall and Tyler Cohen and Teal especially put that problem in front and actually contested the argument that we are having progress. And in fact, we're having regress. He shows, for example, that uh, supersonic aircraft were retired and we actually got worse on aircraft, right? Um, another example, do you know what Fogbank is? No. Okay, so Fogbank, if you Google that, Mother Jones has an article on this, actually, Mother Jones, um, did America H-bomb, okay? And there was essentially a loss of institutional memory where it's not even clear, by the way, that America's nuclear weapons work, right? Um, and, uh, so this was something where basically they just lost the institutional capacity to 
make this key component of nuclear weapons, right? And, uh, you know, this is, this is something which is, um, you know, if you look at Patrick Collison's site, uh, he has a thing called patrickcollison.com front slash fast. He has a bunch of things that show uh, the speed at which things used to be built in the physical world. You know, we're talking like the Eiffel Tower is like two years and two months, right? Or like the Golden Gate Bridge was, you know, uh, I forget the exact duration, but it was, it was pretty short. It was like, um, I think it was like a few years. And, uh, you know, all these things, you know, aircraft carriers in, in, during World War II were being cranked out, um, you know, with, with many per year, as opposed to like multi-year durations. And when you look at building the physical world, it, it, San Francisco took like 20 years and $300 million to like, you know, build a bus lane. Okay. Um, you have bathrooms. They, they, they ha- held a press conference. Did you see this thing where they held a press conference for reopening a bathroom? Yeah, I saw that. Okay. So it's like mission accomplished, right? This is... <laughs> Like, that is a genuine regress in our capabilities as a society, right? That's like a return to barbarism. You know, I, we aren't seeing it quite that way. People still will tell me things like, oh, yeah, dude, we could just do it. And, you know, like, it's just the regulations, man. We still have the capability. I'm like, you know what? That is kind of like somebody who's fat and out of shape, who's like, you know, now 50 years old, and they think they can just walk over to the bench press and knock out 225 again because they were able to do it at age 20. Right? So what, so what is holding us back? If, if not the regulations and the bureaucracy, what is holding us back? I mean, it, it, so the thing is regulations and bureaucracy are holding us back. That absolutely is a big part of it, but like th- that's so much bigger than people think. I mean, one way of putting it is regulations and bureaucracy. That was all that was holding back the Chinese under communism. Right. That was all like, the Chinese people, like you know, if you look at the diaspora, these are these you know people can really they can play, you know, they can play on a world scale, they can play on a global scale, but they were held back by Maoism, they were held back by communism. That was just regulations in a sense. I know that's a flip way of putting it, right? Mass murdering regulations, but regulations on the list. Capitalism was entrepreneurship was punishable by death. That'll set you back a bit, right? And uh, and so once they quote decided to flip the switch, once Deng Xiaoping was able to take over from Mao. Um, and won that coup because it was really a coup, even though CCP portrays it as continuous. Once Deng Xiaoping took over from, uh, uh, you know, uh, China, he couldn't just be like, okay, all regulations, boom, done. Capitalism is legal now. He had to like gradually turn the whole thing. And he did it with special economic zones in Shenzhen. He had to spend political capital on that. He had to turn a nation of like insane communists into something that was like kind of sort of risk tolerant or whatever. And he was, the only way he was able to do it was by basically calling it communism, right? Mm-hmm. And basically doing something that was like, you know, most people don't don't think about this, but if you think about the words Christianity or democracy or capitalism or communism, these are capacious words that contain both X and its opposite. Like Christianity contains both, you know, the, the folks who tore down the Roman Empire and the folks who built up the Holy Roman Empire, the Christian kings and the ones who are against all, you know, emperors. Um, communism contains both the guys who are hanging capitalists in Russia and China now where capitalists can be in the communist party. These are like, you know, these things which contain both a and not a point being that Deng was able to only reform China once he had total power very gradually. And it took like 40 years for them to build up what they are. So if the U S just started turning in the right direction, it's not, you know, overnight thing, get rid of the regulations, boom, you know, like very impatient, everything goes vertical. It's it's like a process, so I don't think it's like an easy fix at all. Um, 
Go ahead. I can I can say more so, on that. But. Yeah. So so where do you see the U.S. headed? Because um, you know, a big part of your project is we need alternatives. So yes. is the U.S. irredeemably headed in a direction that is bad, harmful? Are we um, necessarily headed towards something like anarchy uh, or or massive division? I, I think. So necessarily, where, just where do you word. where do you see? Yeah, it is a yeah, strong yeah. word, but where do you it's see strong. us going in the next five years, ten years? So, so one thing I want to make clear before I say anything on this is there's like a two by two matrix, right? Um, I predict something good is happen going to happen because I want something good to happen. I predict something. I predict, or rather, let's say it's uh, it's uh, China, right? You can have the entire two by two, or America. You can have the entire two by two. You can predict that things will go well because you wish the place well. You can predict things will go well. Even if you don't wish the place well, you're like, oh, this competitor is gaining on us, but it's going to go well for them. You're just a realist about it. You can predict things are going to go poorly, despite the fact that you wish the place well, because it's it's unfortunate. But, you know, this thing that you invest a lot in, it's going down. And you can predict that things are going poorly because you want it to go poorly. All four combinations are possible, right? Mm-hmm. The reason I say that is if you X is going good or Y is going bad, people say, oh, you're a shell or you know, or you're a doomer, right? And, uh, you know, the actual answer is to be like a realist, right? Mm-hmm. And to try to see the world as it is without biases to the maximum extent possible, which is hard because you're within a system and you're rooting for it and so on and so forth. But basically, um, what do I think? I think that there's a lot of forces that are pushing towards what I call American anarchy, okay? And Peter Turchin has graphs on this, if you're familiar with that. He has like a quantitative approach. Dalio's book has another quantitative approach. Uh, you know, the fourth turning has like sort of a qualitative approach. Um, there's a lot of things, quantitative and qualitative. Uh, you know, sovereign individual has yet a different you know perspective, but all of these things sort of point to serious, serious conflict. Um, so, so does obviously everybody's experience over the last few years. Uh, you're starting to see lots of folks calling on left and right for national divorce people predicting civil war and so on and so forth. And and fundamentally, it's not a nation state anymore. It's not a single country. It is a minimum binational. I think you've seen the graph that I had in the book on the um, the blue and the red, how they're disjoint in, in digital space. They friend each other, right? One way of thinking about it is, uh, you know, one form of progress is people are willing to marry across racial lines. You know, that's that's definitely uh, something very different than 50 or six years ago. But you know, you know what they're not willing to marry across? Party lines. Right. Democrats will only marry Democrats. Republicans will only marry Republicans. Here's the thing. People in a generation, half a generation, arguably now, ideology is already becoming biology. Right. Like if that belief you have is so strong that you literally will not marry somebody who has the other belief in a generation or so that becomes Sunni versus Shiite. Right. So this, becomes an ethnicity. To, to stop you for a second. Is this very different from what we've experienced in the past where. Um, say Catholics might not marry Protestants or um, Muslims might not marry Jews or uh, people of different races might not marry. Well, and you, and you had all sorts of, you had all sorts of, in some sense, multi um, ethnic communities throughout the United States who lived in, in very distinct pockets. That's true. But basically the thing is, I mean, Lincoln and FDR were both huge centralizing forces, right? But we're in a decentralizing age. You know, like the, the 
people can't point to past historical examples where things kind of worked out, right? But you know, if you if if you invest in, in tech companies, right? One of the point, uh, points I make in the book is tech companies are actually a pretty good thing to think about from a history standpoint for the for the following reason: they are experiments on small to medium to even large numbers of human beings where uh, you're running effectively commercial experiments, philosophical experiments, experiments on the nature of how humans collaborate and what they will buy and do. And if you have a long enough career as an investor, you can see lots of different trajectories and you see thousands of them, right? Like I've probably, I don't know, at this point, I've certainly been involved with hundreds, perhaps thousands of companies. And so I've seen lots and lots of different curves, right? And you see some commonalities. Of course, tech isn't everything, but the reason I say that is a 10-year experiment is about the longest that you can see multiple times in your life and pay attention to it. 30 years, you know, you can't run a second rep of it, right? You know, you start the 30 experiment, 20, you're 50, you know, 50 to 80, you might not make it to see the second rep of the experiment, right? So 10 years is about like the longest you can kind of run, right? Like multiple startups and like learn from it. And, uh, you know, what you'll see in, in, in it, when, when you do this is uh, there are companies sometimes that seem to have nine lives and they die on the 10th, right? Past performance, you know, think about how many companies just like they made it, they made it, they made it, they made it, and then they did not make it, right? There's some tech transition, poof, you know, look, look at Kodak, look at, you know, these like lots of formerly glorious American brands um, have gotten killed by tech or whatever recently. And even tech companies, they all kill each other. They, you know, the, the yesterday's, great, you know, like Yahoo gets killed by Google, gets outcompeted by somebody else, right? So it's the market red and tooth and claw. And so one thing I find is I, I do see people hearkening back to past greatness. They're like, you know, ah, oh, biology, look, don't worry about it. You know, as Winston Churchill said, you know, America, you know, does, uh, you know, the right thing after trying everything else, right? Or, you know, basically people give these kind of in, in my view, empty slogans, right? Because there's no plan that's like a realistic plan to pull it together. It's like, first, let's gain total political power, right? Whether that is like blue censorship or red dictatorship. You might say uh, blue crackdown on disinformation or red monarchy, different ways of putting it, right? The groups are like, first, gain total power and totally silence the opposition, and then we enter the utopia. But the thing is that that process of trying to gain total power is like results in like massive conflict that may not necessarily resolve quickly, right? Like a long-term civil conflict is one where both sides are kind of matched 50-50 for a long time, right? It doesn't necessarily need to be this dramatic, like, you know, flip to one side or the other, especially when it's not like a typically geographical conflict, if it's like a digital conflict. So I, I find that people will say this, but then I'm like, okay, show me what you are betting on to reunify. Like, show me the trend that, you know, show me the thing. What would you invest in to reunify or whatever? And there's folks, look, you know, I know Andrew Yang is trying like his third party stuff or whatever, but I can just show graph after graph after graph, chart after chart, which is down into the right in terms of measures of social cohesion on things that and they believed in, in, you know, Christianity, and that's down from like 75% down to like 47%. They've lost the peg in a sense, right? The things that were constants are now variables. Um, trust in government, slip. Trust in media, slip. All these things are just falling off a cliff. Trust in each other, off a cliff, right? That's, a, that's something which, 
you know, to just see poof, everything just comes back is frankly, in my view, wishful thinking, right? Uh, and, and one of the reasons is like many people in the U.S. are immigrants. And, you know, at, like if you've come from India, Vietnam, China, South Korea, Iran, the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, South America, Mexico, like, you know, Africa, like the, <laughs> there's a lot of times where it doesn't work out. It just many, many times over the 20th century, it did not work out and you had to get out of Dodge, right? And so there's this kind of concept of it can't have everything, you know, like it's just like a charmed kind of thing. And what that reminds me of, I wrote this article called Founding versus Inheriting. Have you heard the saying shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations? You ever heard I think I might have heard it, but I haven't thought about it. <laughs> Okay, okay. So, so it's, it's like an older American saying, which is like, there's a founder and they build up all the wealth and there's a son and there's a dissipate grandson who just like puts it up his nose, you know, like basically just spends it all down. And so they go back to poverty or whatever, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, right? That it takes, right? And um, in a sense, this is inevitable, actually, because uh, most people don't think about it this way. But um, if you assume a generation time is about 20 or 30 years, let's say it's 30 years, right? You, you'd have on, let's say on average, you have two children and four grandchildren and eight grand, great grandchildren and so on and so forth. Whatever fortune you have is then divided by two to the N for the nth generation. And unless it's doubling every 30 years, which is actually very difficult, Japan is probably the only place that's had such a long, continuous kind of thing, like the oldest businesses in the world are in Japan. Most jurisdictions do not have continuous compounding over decades, let alone centuries, right? They have some war or revolution which interrupts the compounding, right? So mm -hmm. fortunes actually tend to dissipate. They tend to actually get spent down simply because of the exponential increase in the number of descendants. Primogeniture somewhat compensates for this where the first person has like the fortune. But point being that this also applies to governments, right? George Washington could found, you know, the US military and the USA, right? Hamilton could found something that was the ancestor to the Fed. But most of the people today are just, they're not necessarily biological heirs, but they're political heirs. They're inheriting something they could never have built, right? The guy who's the nth mayor of New York or whatever, like that person, you know, and nothing actually like Eric Adams, you have nothing against him, you know, right? But let me just take, you know, whatever, the, the nth governor or the nth, you know, uh, like senator or congressman, whatever. Um, these are folks who are inheriting things that somebody else built, and, you know, as Obama was put it, you didn't build that, right? You know, and what that means is they, are, they aren't even like the, you know, shirt sleeves in three generations. It's like six or 10 or 20 or 30. And so they just, you know, were selected purely for legitimacy, but not for competence, right? They're legitimate in the sense that there was an election process and people acceded to it and so on. They inherit that seat, but they're legitimate in the sense that the great, great, great grandchild is a legitimate heir, you know, at some point that factory that they inherited, like it's cranking out widgets, but it will need to turn on a dime because market conditions have changed. And now, uh, you know, you need to crank out something else. You need to crank out masks or, or whatever it is. Right. And that great grandson doesn't know how to operate the factory, just inherited it. And so completely at a loss when there's some new thing on the horizon that they need to adapt to. And this is basically the U.S. establishment. They are completely at a loss with new things coming, the rise of China, now the rise of India, the rise of technology and of mobile, the decline of alignment. All they can do is just signal, you know, online all the time. 
And, and so I do not see anything that is on the horizon to put it back together other than bad things, which are folks who are like, Oh, first let me get all the power. Boom. Like this. And, and so, so I don't actually see a centralizing thing that's going to put Humpty Dumpty back together. again. I may be wrong, but that's why I'm pessimistic. So I'm not one of these people who thinks that things will always stay good necessarily or that you know it just automatically fixes. But uh, we went through the American Civil War. Has the Constitution, has our system proved to be robust over the years? Ah, but here's the thing. I know people will say, yes, the, you know, well, the U.S. survived the Civil War, Biology. We could survive the The U.S. was not the center of the global economy then, right? It was, you know, it didn't have the reserve currency of the world. It didn't have like the United Nations. It wasn't supposed to be guaranteeing, you know, the independence of all these other countries. It didn't have 700 military bases around the world. It wasn't this global empire, right? If you have a civil war within the heart of global empire, yes, it's going to be a much bigger deal than the American civil war, right? In fact, even the instability we've already seen is a very big deal, right? Overseas, one thing, you know, if you if you have been overseas and you talk to people from overseas, um, you know, the difference between love and like love and hate are opposites, but indifference is the other thing. Right. And lots of countries are just, you know, especially post covid that, you know, for you're, you're about my contemporary, right? You're born in mm-hmm. the 80s. Or okay. Yeah. 1980. So, OK, so you're exactly my contemporary. So, you know, through our 20s and 30s, basically, you know, you might. I certainly, you know, disagree with like all the things the U.S. was doing in the Middle East, but the power of the U.S. military was there, right? Like people, you know, knew it was there, et cetera. And, you know, there was some, I don't know, some hurricane in Haiti or something like that. You would see a brawny U.S. Marine getting off a plane and they were like, you know, the last resort of the world. Like, you know, the Marines are there and so on and so forth. And Russia, you know, had just gotten beat in the Cold War in 1991 and China was under... Uh, you know, Deng's commandment to um, hide your strength and bide your time. And so the only challengers to like the U.S. world order were basically, you know, like Osama bin Laden or whatever. And that was not that was not like a nation state challenge. It wasn't like, you know, like a like a huge thing, especially in retrospect. Um, and so what people sort of took for granted was that that level of power would always be there, that the fortune would never run out, that this thing they inherited would would continue to be powerful, that all the enemies would remain defeated, that everybody would fold in. And that's that's not actually, in my view, the case. Um, you know, this this empire now, you're seeing lots of countries. Well, obviously, for example, China is going in some way. It doesn't respect the U.S. anymore. This is why I disagree with Mearsheimer's article in Foreign Policy from last year. Did you see this article? I'm not sure. So basically, uh, he was... He's, you know, a foreign policy realist, and I think, you know, I think he's a smart guy, and I think uh, I, I, I read all his stuff and, you know, what have you. But here is this thread that I just wrote. Um, you know, he is basically saying the inevitable rivalry, America-China, the tragedy of great power politics, essentially arguing that America should pursue just like an explicitly zero-sum game with, uh, with China, right? And, uh, you know, for example, he's like, had U.S. policymakers during the unipolar moment thought in terms of balance of power politics, they would have tried to slow Chinese growth and maximize the power gap between Beijing and the U.S. So what that's actually doing is um, it is saying that the U.S. does not want China to become powerful explicitly. And more generally, it's saying that the U.S. contender to its power. And it's also saying that's the basis of the rules-based order, that the U.S. is number one in its sets of rules, right? 
Now, everybody outside the U.S. Kind of, kind of knows this, but now it's like becoming common knowledge that it's actually just a might makes right kind of thing. And, uh, you know, when you, when you have articles like this, it might makes right can work when you have might uh, and you can bully people. But if the country is flailing like it was during COVID and if it's internally divided, then guys outside are like, well, do we have to listen to them? Do we admire them anymore? Is the U.S. an admirable society? That's really the fundamental question. For much of our adult life, it was an admirable, admirable society. People wanted to model their society on the U.S. I am not. I, I do not think that's true anymore. I think if you look, people do not want to model. They would not pick the, the U.S. system and and import that level of chaos and stuff into their countries. Um, you know, like like it's not it's it's not working in practice. Even if you might say it works in theory. So what is the other system? Well, it'll be if we're not lucky, or rather, I should say, if we're unfortunate, it will be China. And my book is actually about the alternative to both of those, to both American anarchy and Chinese control, is individuals being able to start new societies and new states and rebuild things consensually. Let me pause here. So to, before we go to the next step, so is the perception of the U.S. a perception issue? In other words, was there massive incompetence, corruption bef- before, and now it's being seen? Or is it that... Now there is more corruption and incompetence. Is the is the U.S. is the U.S. military worse now than it was before, or is it just yeah. now, or is it now that we now we see all of the stuff because we have social media and we've got cameras everywhere and we just have more information, more data? Great question. And let me give some. So I argue, um, yes, it is worse. And why? If you look at uh, the Zumwalt, the F thirty five Ford class carrier, literal combat ship. All of those are just massive and expensive failures. The U.S. spent $2 trillion in, and lost in Afghanistan. It doesn't make physical goods anymore, right? The arsenal of democracy is not possible because all the factories are in China. So it'll be the arsenal of communism. In any protracted fight, the U.S. can't build things, right? So, it, you know, just fundamentally, if you look at World War II, it was like a production battle. The U.S. doesn't, can't produce. Um, you know, when, when, you, uh, when you start adding those things up, um, you can't have like multiple trillion dollar failures in the military over and over and over again and have the same military might. Now, with that said, I think there's, as I mentioned in the book, there's a possible quote bailout for U.S. power from a totally unexpected direction, which is digital power. Right. Essentially, the capture by the state um, of Google and Amazon and Apple and so on, they can execute. They do have multi-billion person footprints around the world. They still have lots and lots of competent people. And so it is possible that that is what the U.S. government becomes, right? The transition of U.S. empire into this digital power. And that, you know, like that plus Palantir plus Andrew Palantir, you know, targets and Andrew sends the drones. That's just a very different shape of American power than what people think about. Go ahead. Do you, and do you mean by a hostile takeover of these companies or do you mean by some kind of soft takeover? Like well, some kind have, of some kind of cooperative takeover where you trade something to them in exchange for something else. You know, yeah, we'll have so, our, we'll have our hands in your company in exchange for this. So, so I, what I actually think is happening is um, this is complicated, but the the so in China it's very explicit. All right, in China it's like Jack Ma, you built a great company. Thanks very much. Chinese Commerce Party is going to nationalize it from here, right? For a few reasons. First is they don't want any one person to become as powerful as 
you know, the government. Second is this is like, you know, a, an amazing surveillance machine or whatever on the citizenry. Third is they don't want somebody like that potentially being at odds. And they want to give an example to everybody else that they better be aligned with Xi Jinping thought or GTFO, right? Or maybe you don't even GTFO. Maybe you can't GTFO. China's not even issuing visas anymore, right? They're not renewing passports for many people. 95%, down 95% on, on passport issuance, the lockdowns, all this stuff, right? So China's um, very explicit about it. They're just nationalizing the company. They give some public justification. Oh, they violated so-and-so regulations of refining and blah, blah, blah. But basically what it means is, it is, uh, it is a justification to install a CCP loyalist there such that this is now regime aligned, right? And that, I argue, is what the U.S. establishment attempted and partially succeeded in over the 2010s. We, uh, do you remember when uh, you know, the Snowden revelations came out? And um, I sure do. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah. But the tech CEOs at that time were an independent enough power base that they went to Obama. He tried to get them to fix healthcare.gov, which was another thing that state capacity wasn't sufficient to solve. And they said, hey, we, uh, you know, we were against, you know, the surveillance thing that's happening. They did not want their companies to be hijacked here. They had a different moral axis that came from open source and privacy and, and all the type of stuff. I don't know if you remember that, right? Um, yeah, sure. And, no, I, I led the charge against the NSA, NSA surveillance. So sorry, yeah. sorry. Of course, <laughs> sorry. I, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. Uh, actually, I do remember that you and uh, there was actually a graph. You know, now I'm remembering there was a graph where actually it showed that this was splitting along party lines with you and Wyden and other people on yeah. I think the pro privacy side. That's right. That's sorry. Right. I, um, but so so you will remember that. But the thing is now today, nine ten years later, like. The government, in a sense, the one thing they can do, the establishment really more generally, because it's not just the U.S. government. The control circuitry for the U.S. government lives outside the U.S. government, uh, meaning journalists, media, academia, the uh, unelected bureaucracy or the permanent bureaucracy, the civil service. Those all live outside the mere elected government, which can be swapped in and swapped out like a like a skin in a, in a video game. Right. Or like, a, you know, like a swappable core. Um, the the uh, the the control circuitry is outside. And, you know, I talk about this in the book, um, and this is, you know, you can call it deep state cathedral. You can call it, um, you know, the establishment. There's, there's many different ways of thinking about it, uh, the paper belt, et cetera. These are different names that emphasize different aspects of it. But if you think about it as the control circuitry or as like the establishment network, this group was seeing another network arise, right? And that other network was the network in Silicon Valley of, of the tech companies. And I actually gave a talk in 2013 seeing, and I think, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, I think correctly anticipating the conflict between these because, you know, a challenger arises, right? So what did this network do? Basically, the the journos were like the point of the spear here where, um, you know, of the legacy, you know, U.S. establishment, you know, you have academia and you have media and you have government and you have Hollywood and so on. But academia takes years to put out a paper. Uh, you know, the government takes many years to put out a law. Uh, Hollywood takes a while to put out, you know, movies and so on. But the media, news media, was the only thing that had the same 24-7 metabolism as the tech founders. And so that became the point of the spear of the, uh, of the establishment counterattack on tech. And uh, that really got started in earnest. You can point to exactly the time, which was right after Obama got reelected. Even in December 2012, the... Um, the coverage of tech companies was very positive. The nerds go marching in to help Obama get elected. After 2013, knives came out because in the preceding four years, tech had gone in 
taken $50 billion off of advertising revenue, knocking it down from 67 to 17 billion, all this media revenue had gone away, all this power had gone away. So what happened was the US establishment network attacked these tech companies, wokeified them over the course of the 2010s. Now you have various apparatchiks in positions of power in all of these companies. Their eyes glow blue, like, you know, Game of Thrones, where like the dragon is mm-hmm. like weird, right? Now these, these dragons, we lost our dragons. We lost Google and Apple and Amazon. Facebook might still actually survive because, you know, Zuck is still in charge. But the ones that have are founderless companies, Google, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, are like the dragons with their eyes blowing blue, okay? They are the most dangerous, like, surveillance tools. Like, the, the, what what is capable... Uh, everything Snowden talked about turnkey tyranny, I unfortunately do think is going to happen. Um, you know, like all, all these things are just limited by convention, your emails, right? You, you know, your, your private thoughts, the, the kinds of AI models that they can build knowing every search query you have, all of that is something that will be weaponized, I think, against the people if there's like a serious threat to establishment power. So what they were able to do, like the Chinese, but just less explicitly, is sort of take over these tech companies and they're finishing the job with the antitrust stuff, right? And if you listen to Elizabeth Warren or someone like that, she will explicitly say, why is she going after these companies? Because they're too powerful. Not because there's customer harm, because they're too powerful or quote, threat to democracy, et cetera, et cetera, right? And really what they mean by that is just like communism is whatever the Chinese Communist Party says it is, which could include capitalism at any given moment. It's whatever they want it to be. It's just, it morphs, Right. Um, democracy is whatever the U.S. establishment says it is. That's to say surveillance, censorship, deplatforming, unbanking, bombing, invasions, all that stuff is okay if it's called protecting democracy. If there's an election result they do not like, it is an attack on democracy, right? And when you see that, it's like it's a party and not a process, right? By contrast, like Zuck, if, if, you, if you think about Zuck and how he talks about WeChat, he doesn't say they're not practicing technology, Right? They're also practicing it. So that's a process which is neutral that anybody can do. He's still a competitor to them, but he doesn't try to say, you know, that, that uh, they're, they're not doing technology. Of course, they're programming. Point being that the establishment, their success over the last 10 years is they wokeified all these big tech companies. So why, why am I even saying anything? Why am I not like under a rock, you know, just basically being the most PC person on the planet, right? In the process of doing this, the establishment lost a lot of their talent, because you had this, you know, just like 2013, there was like a, a phase shift. Post-2021, I think rather than tech versus media, you can now call it decentralized tech plus media versus centralized tech plus media. Because all of the, I shouldn't say all, a critical mass of the tech founders, entrepreneurs, um, Web3 and crypto people, uh, venture capitalists, and a critical mass of journalists uh, you know, Barry Weiss and Greenwald and Matt Taibbi and so on, went to Substack, decentralized away from the establishment, right? And so the talent and the innovation is now decentralized in its own cluster. And they're also immunized against the U.S. establishment. What the U.S. establishment inherits is enormous amounts of legacy money and power and still some smart folks, right? But less, right? The talent is on this side versus that side. And so um, point being, uh, what I think happens is that antitrust thing eventually gets settled by having some stupid left-right combination where, you know, the tech companies basically, um, you know, they, they're, they're backing the U.S. establishment on everything. They're backing it with military stuff abroad if they're doing that. Um, all, the, all the resistance Google was putting up to that potentially goes away. Uh, you know, they're, they're backing them with surveillance of 
U.S. citizens if necessary. And we've already seen that with the Canadian truckers. We've already seen that with the, the 140 million Russians or whatever that just got deplatformed. We've seen that with censorship. We've seen that with, um, you know, unbanking. We've seen that with un- all that stuff basically just becomes policy, right? It goes from shocking and exceptional to policy-based. And, and finally, we see um, it, it sort of becoming like Wall Street, where Wall Street, after the financial crisis, it became sort of integrated with the establishment. And, you know, now it's something where they can't go bankrupt anymore. So that's the deal those companies get for becoming arms of the establishment. Let me pause there. Okay. Let's take, uh, let's take a call from Steve. Um, I'm just going to get some water for one second. Yeah, no, not a problem. Hi, yes. My question was about, um, uh, earlier on in the discussion, we are talking about Twitter. Uh, I was just curious for Balaji, what is, um, you know, your plan if, you know, whatever happens to Twitter, you know, the rails are really shaky right now. Uh, I know you have, uh, you talked about Substack and uh, you have your own site, but what about uh, microblogging off of these uh, large tech companies? Sorry, can you just repeat that for a second? Yeah, I was just curious around, um, you know, talking about uh, communication and Twitter microblogging. Um, I really enjoy your, your comments on Twitter, but, you know, what what's to say you know if Twitter takes you down removes everything all the history um, do you back up your your tweets somewhere else or you know where do you see oh, the yeah. future of microblogging activity PubSub etc it seems like there isn't you know a lot of um, mass Farcaster. adoption but yeah where do you yeah. see that so, going well so uh, there's a there's a post um, so three thoughts first is the most important thing about Twitter is actually not your tweets or your data it is actually your ability to communicate with your followers right. That is the part that you cannot individually export. You know, that is to say, you go to Twitter, you do export data, you can have a log of all your past stuff. That's easy to get. What is hard to get is the ability to communicate with a follower, whether DM or via tweet, without Twitter's consent, right? The disintermediation of Twitter is actually what we want to solve technologically. How do you solve that? Um, there's various approaches, but I think the most promising, and I've looked at this for many years, me and Naval Ravi Khan have looked at this, we funded various things. I think the most promising is going to be... Um, the ENS-style approach that if you go to, there's a post called the Billion User Table at the networkstate.com. Read that. That goes into detail. Um, it's being implemented at uh, apps like Farcaster, F-A-R-C-A-S-T-E-R, um, which basically use like ENS uh, uh, for login. And when they do that, you effectively have a portable social profile that you can dock in or out of any given app. Okay, And that solves not just the individual data portability problem, but also the problem of, oh, if this app tries to uh, come in between me and my friends or me and my followers, um, I have the alternative to just connect, contact them on chain or through another client, okay? So that, that is the thing to look at, the billing user table. If you understand that uh, post, you'll maybe see, you know, technologically how we can do this. I think this is finally happening. Um, it'll just take a little while to build, but people have been working on it for some time. All right, let me take the next question. Thank you. Thanks. That's all we've got in the queue right now. So if someone wants okay. to get in the queue, they can get in the queue and, and we'll take some more questions. So let's let's talk a little more explicitly about um, the network state and what your vision is. Um, first, does the U.S. have to fail for network states to take off? No. And in fact, I hope – one thing I want to be totally clear about is – and I say this in the book, but I, I am – and that was the reason I had that two-by-two. Two, right? Yeah. I'm not hoping, you know, of course I want the U.S. to succeed. Yeah, and I'm not suggesting that you're yeah. hoping for it. But yeah. uh, 
but, but given but, all the it, things going on, you're at least making a case that it could happen. Right. So essentially, here's what I'm saying is you can think of the book, and this actually my refactor of it, will frame it as problem and solution, right? If you believe that the world is going towards American anarchy and Chinese control, where the leader of the free word falls into infighting, and on the other side of the world, China has this insane digital crackdown, okay? And both of them justify themselves, by the way, by pointing at the other, you know? The kind of anarchic sphere says, well, at least we're not China, right? And the one thing they can agree on is just to keep fighting and not be, you know, like like surveilled or whatever. And the Chinese sphere basically exports the surveillance regime to other countries saying, you don't want to be like America, right? They have turnkey. They've actually, there's like 60 countries already that have bought this kind of equipment from China. And guess what? China gets a backdoor and all of that. How, what's not to like, right? There'll never be any kind of revolution or dissent, whatever, in any of those countries ever again. That's, that's their promise to them. And the problem with that, of course, is that can be used for some very bad stuff, you know? Like, but I think, unfortunately, a lot of people will, if the choice between anarchy and a grim order of some kind, many people will choose that other, but that's like a terrible choice between them, right? Both those are terrible choices. So that's why I think of the network state as basically something where when we have been able to give the tools for great founders to step up and lead and quote, take things into their hands, but to do so on the basis of pure consent, right? To basically be, hey, you can declare yourself CEO at age, you know, 18 or 19 or 20, but you're CEO of nothing, right? You're CEO of a startup, you're CEO of a domain, it's worth $7 and, and you know, a box of donuts, whatever. Like this is everything you build out of it is what you make of it. But they could, if they, if they build something better, they could become the CEO of something that's bigger than a Fortune 500 company if they're very successful, like Carlson has done, like Zuckerberg has done. And they would never have gotten that promotion on their own, right? They wouldn't have, you know, like the age of Fortune 500 companies keeps rising of, of CEOs of them. So uh, if you can build a mechanism for great leaders to rise, that's really the meta thing that I'm trying to solve for, right? Because we know that works in a company setting, but countries, communities are not companies, not everything. I, look, I'm as capitalist as they get, but not everything is for profit and everything is not, well, you know, democracy and capitalism are both important, but they're both dispute resolution mechanisms, right? You know, uh, the, let the, you know, the voice of the people or the election aggregates and then, you know, people need to get in line. Uh, or let the market decide. These are things when people cannot agree on something. There's some scarcity and they cannot simply agree on what to do uh, via informal mechanisms. So they have to use these formal mechanisms of voting or auctions or markets. Whereas within a community, within like your family or within, um, you know, a company setting, not everything is an auction. Not everything is a vote, right? There is, there's non-monetary and non-legislative ways of allocating things that are based on just shared values, Right. That is a part that's missing from the U.S. right now is those implicit shared values where people can get along without, uh, you know, it's not anti-capitalist and it's not anti-democracy. It is basically that community that underpins both of those, right? Capitalism and democracy are, in a sense, edge case dispute resolution mechanisms where a lot of things can be done with community, right? Go, let me go ahead. So is your idea of network states, is it a proposal or it, is it a prediction? It's like um, the closest model would be Theodore Herzl's Jurjunstadt, if we're lucky, right? That was the book um, called uh, The Jewish State that led to Zionism, right? And what did Herzl do? He published the book to, as a nexus point to get feedback and get the concepts out there. And then he held conferences, helped, and people raised funds and so on, and they built towards this. And 50 years later, they had Israel, right? Now, 
I recognize Israel is a controversial topic and, you know, so on and so forth, right? But just from this standpoint, like, you know, there's four influences, I think, uh, in the book, um, at least, but obviously the U.S. with the Constitution, common law, all the things, you know, you can't can't escape all the amazing things that America has contributed to the world. Israel in the sense of a book that led to the founding of a state. India in the sense of nonviolent independence, right, which I think is important, right, mm-hmm. um, very important. And Singapore in the sense of a, uh, a city-state with a founding CEO, right, like Lee Kuan Yew, right, who, had, who was very, very strong personal control and delivered an amazing outcome as a function of that, but was crucially checked by exit. If he really wasn't doing a good job, people would leave Singapore, people would not bring their capital to Singapore, et cetera. All four of those are actually forks of the UK code base, right? The US, Israel, India, and Singapore were all British colonies that forked the UK code base in different ways. And so once you start thinking about it that way, where there's they have like this sort of common antecedent of Britain, they're not anti-British, nor would they describe themselves as pro-British, they're post-British, right? In the same way, you kind of think of these code bases then. I do think there'll be like a post-American set of things, which is not at all anti-American, nor does it define itself as pro-American, but it's post-American. Um, and these network states and startup societies, one way of thinking about it is, I mean, you probably know this, but you know what percentage of the world can become president of the U.S.? No. Uh, what percentage well, of the world can become a president yeah. of the U.S.? Right. You know, 4%. Well, even less, right? Because so 4% of the world is American, roughly, right? But you have to be like 35, natural-born citizen, blah, blah, other other kinds of characteristics. Sure. Right? So so that's probably on the order of like 2%, right? Yet people will say the most powerful man in the world, you know, blah, blah. I actually don't even think that's as true anymore. You know, Trump, you know, like was not even the most powerful man in his own country. He was, you know, like, right? Um, so I don't actually think that's the case as the most powerful man, but let's just run to that for now. If that's the case... 98% of the world has no realistic ambition of actually attaining, you know, that, that spot. That's actually not a, quote, democratic world order. That's not an egalitarian thing. That's like imperial, right? By contrast, we can give anybody the tools to become president of a startup society. And I actually do think there's a lot of, I think there's a Nigerian George Washington. I think there's, you know, a, you know, Brazilian Lee Kuan Yew or something out there, right? These are people, and the reason I know that is, you know, Calendly, there's all these great companies that have been founded by people from totally off the map. If you give them the chance to lead and you, you have them constrained by exit, they will show you they're capable of doing it, right? There's people in South America, there's people in the Middle East, people in Eastern Europe, people in the Midwest, right? And um, so a big part of this is giving people that chance to lead. And what it also does, I argue, is it gives a, a way for ambitious young politicians, perhaps like one Justin Amash, to... If you if you want to, a, a new, quote, path to power is to declare yourself president of a startup society and see how many citizens flock to your banner, right? You don't have to wait till you're 75 years old or 79 years old and pay dues for 40 years, right? You can actually literally just, you know, the, the process I described in the book is you set up an online society, okay? You see people come there. You build it around a common purpose. You have a moral critique of society that your society is trying to solve, like a, right? And then you build an economy, you eventually crowdfund territory, and the fullness of time gain diplomatic recognition. Every individual step there I can I can cite a precedent for, even that last step where, you know, I mentioned how, like, Wyoming has recognized Ethereum and El Salvador has recognized Bitcoin. These networks are starting to get recognized by sovereigns. That, that is now happening. So every individual step has a thing there, and but the combination of them gives people a new path to power beyond simply going and contesting within this desiccated old establishment. Let me pause there.
Yeah. So we could talk about this for 10 hours. I know you're going to run yeah. short on time soon. Yeah. I encourage everyone to read the network state, go to networkstate.com, the networkstate.com. But, um, so just briefly, what prevents a network state that say exists within the boundaries of the current United States? What prevents it from being say invaded, invaded. by the, yeah. by the United everybody, States? Everybody always asks this question. And, uh, the short For example, is, uh, you, you said, what if Justin Amash declares himself president of a network state? So if I did that and I just decided, hey, my laws apply and U.S. laws no longer apply and the state of Michigan's laws no longer apply or right. whatever, right. Do, don't, don't so these other any, states come in uh, and – okay, go ahead. Extremely good question. So the first is I would not say – you would not declare yourself literally the president of a network state. You would say I'm the president of a startup society. Why? Sure. Because I actually define in the book – that a network state is only that that has diplomatic recognition from others, right? Mm-hmm. And many useful products that, you know, in a sense, many useful goods you can deliver to a community can happen without legal levels of recognition, okay? For example, I give, I give some examples like um, you can have online guilds, okay, which uh, give you cancel-proof culture as opposed to cancel culture, where you have, for example, a group of designers – 99% of the time, they're just collaborating each other on design. 1% of the time, they're defending each other online. That's like a network union where people work together collectively for a common purpose. They don't have to get to a full state recognition or anything, um, but, but you're giving social and community value. You're still the founder of a startup society. The next level beyond a network union is a network archipelago. You're crowdfunding physical territory um, around the world, and you're knitting it together via the internet. Just like Google's offices are distributed around the world, but they're knit together via Google's internet, okay? And in Network Archipelago, an example I give in the book is keto kosher. So rather than everybody trying to maintain a sugar-free or low-sugar or low-carb diet themselves, people start crowdfunding cul-de-sacs and apartment buildings and maybe little towns and so on, which actually aren't that expensive if you are willing to move people. And now they start actually having it where enforced at the boundary – there's just no cookies coming in, right? There's no carbs, there's no sugar. And as this territory grows, both you know, here and in pockets around the world, every restaurant, every grocery chain there is keto kosher. And people within those jurisdictions, they start dropping 20, 30 pounds just by being there because the crime of opportunity of having cookies is not there. That, again, requires no legal changes whatsoever. It does require enough organization to get to a physical jurisdiction, right? And to crowdfund that. And then finally, a network state is like the highest level, and that would be something where you have enough oomph, enough political juice, enough diplomatic leverage, enough population and income to negotiate a degree of diplomatic recognition or sovereignty. And that itself is a continuum, by the way. That doesn't mean like you're a nuclear weapon state that can go and you know do what I want, whatever. It can mean a deal with, um, you know, like Wyoming recognizing Ethereum, for example, or a deal with like. Tuvalu to sell the .tv domain, there's many limited recognitions of sovereignty that you can start with, right? Like a good example would be to just try to be on an island and uh, say self-driving cars are legal in this town, right? That's like a good kind of example of something you might need state-level recognition for. Point is that startup societies, one of the big points they try to make in the book is rebuilding community is the first step towards everything. Today, everybody immediately goes for the law or the gun, right? Or sometimes the dollar. And those are important tools, right? But the community and the bonds of that community and the shared values are really where it starts. And everything else is a dispute resolution mechanism, right? Contra Mao, political power starts from the hearts of the community. And that's actually, you know, before, quote, the gun or whatever, right? 
to your last point, why doesn't it just get invaded? So have you heard, you know, you know why the internet was originally invented? Have you heard that? Yeah. Al Gore. Well, (laughs) sure, sure. But, but all at at the very beginning, it was meant to defend against a nuclear attack. Right. Like I say, it was something that couldn't be nuked. And unfortunately we might have to go back to that future. Right. Because those guys were actually pretty smart. The entire concept of, I mean, we don't think about that today because we're using, you know, these military, you know, initially military GPS satellites to tag a photo of brunch for Instagram. Okay. So like that initial purpose, remember the shirt sleeves, the shirt sleeves, the initial purpose that these things were built for has sort of gotten so eroded over time that we forget like, you know, quote, the reason for the season or the original reason this was uh, developed. And um, the internet was built to resist nuclear attack. Why is that important? Well, if you look at my post, the network state in one image, okay, and you look at that visual, right, um, that shows what a scaled network state could look like. And this is assuming one that has diplomatic recognition. It could be also a network archipelago that's just this big. And if you think about it, invading something like that is pretty hard. First, you have to get all those surrounding states would have to grant right of passage for your SWAT teams, right? Second, every node does not need to be public to everybody. You can have secret societies, and, and secret states, right? Just like Google may not give the map of every single office around the world, it's got public offices, but it's probably got private R&D facilities, data centers that are not marked to prevent vandalism or looky-loos. They just have unmarked buildings, right? Security is, you know, stealth is actually valuable. The B2 stealth bomber, why is stealth valuable? It's like that coding is valuable and, and as defense, right? So invisibility and being off the grid to some extent prevents people from being envious, prevents people from wanting to take your stuff or whatever, right? And with zero knowledge and other things, you can do things like prove how big your society is without revealing their location. You can prove only certain things without proving other things, you know? And so this thus resists invasion in several ways. It's decentralized across the world. So it's hard to nuke. You'd have too much collateral damage. It's hard to even SWAT team because you'd have to drop people in all these different jurisdictions. It's hard to even find because you'd have to reveal all these different things. And yet, the size of it can still be proved using things like zero knowledge. And you can prove this thing is as big as like a legacy nation state with a million or 10 million or whatever people. So one way of thinking about it is just like, you know, if you tried to fire a gun underwater, it just doesn't work. You know, the army is not the Navy. Like it's a different theater of war, right? Like the cloud is not the land. Everything, everybody's intuitions that are tuned for physical conflict are not necessarily tuned for digital conflict. The weapons, the theaters are different, how things work, the physics are different, right? And so like nukes don't work online, right? Where you're gonna you can't nuke everybody who's like a Facebook user. You can't nuke every you can't nuke every you know like Bitcoin user or something like that. It's like it's just a different thing. It's almost like um again like shooting a gun underwater using bow and arrow underwater. It's it it is is taking the old model and trying to impose it on the new. So anyway, let me pause there. Well, do you have time for a couple questions? I can do one more question, then I got to stop. Okay. okay let's stop take. Let's minutes. take. Uh, we'll take a caller. The last question. Yeah. Jason. You there, Jason? Okay, we lost Jason. Let's go to Henry. Hey, uh, Balaji, just read the book, really enjoyed it. Um, my question is, I want to found a startup society for the Chinese diaspora, um, sort of like what Afropolitan is for the African diaspora. Um, but how does that fit into the One Commandment framework? Because um, 
unlike something like keto kosher or car free, it doesn't really seem to be a moral innovation. Um, so how do you kind of, without that, how do you track the first, you know, five to 10 members? Well, so actually, I, I actually, I think I mentioned this in the book. And if not, then I should push this update. One concept I have is like from Chinatowns to free Chinese cities, right? And again, the concept here is like a V3, right? V1 is the internal narrative within China, which is uh, basically overall, this is their narrative. I'm not endorsing, I'm just saying what, what it is. The CCP has overall delivered economic growth over the last 40 years has been really high. You should be proud of the accomplishments, be loyal to China, um, look at how poor you were and how rich you are now, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and then there's a the counter argument, which is from the, the West, which basically says China must democratize, which means, you know, like let in American NGOs and, you know, just like writing Iraq's constitution up to the point of like, you know, the Hong Kong protesters were like raising the British flag there. And it looks like they're signaling, you know, in China, they're called the quote, paving the way party for like paving the way for Western imperialism, you know, and that's how it's perceived as, you, as you're probably aware, like often within China. But there's a V3, which is neither conceding to the CCP, nor trying to like violently oppose them, which, you know, results in like buying in some ways strengthening their propaganda narrative. The V3 is to build new Hong Kongs and Singapore's and Taiwan's, but not necessarily adjacent to China, far enough away, just like Chinatowns, you know, are, are far enough away that they're not really bordering China. If you're willing to move, and many people in the Chinese diaspora are, the R-U-N-X-U-E, the Runzu philosophy, um, are you familiar with that, Henry? Have you heard that? Yeah, yeah. 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 So, like, that's a big thing. Basically, lots of people in China want to get out of China. So the capital is there, the demand is there. And so your moral one commandment might be something like, we can be, you know, like Chinese people can demonstrate what freedom is without necessarily, you know, like adopting, you know, it's like freedom with Chinese characteristics, right? You don't have to like adopt the U.S. model. It doesn't have to be like American advisors landing on the ground and, you know, like China getting conquered and imperialized again, which people have a strong thing up their spine of, which I understand the opium wars and so on and so forth. Getting outside of that binary of either CCP or colonialism would be, you know, natively Chinese people showing in a community that is positive towards China, that understands ancient Chinese culture, that can speak the Chinese language, that understands the idioms, that is not trying to change the CCP or threaten China's ancient territory, that avoids all those like red lines, yet still achieves the stated objective of showing that Chinese people can live in freedom, right, and prosperity. That, I think, is kind of something that's a moral commandment. You probably have to reduce it down to like one or two words. Okay, I got to jump, though. Let's talk soon. All right. Thanks, Henry. All right. Balaji, it's an amazing book. Um, Everyone check out thenetworkstate.com. Follow him at Balaji S on Twitter. And uh, thank you for coming on. I know we have so much more to talk about, and we'll catch up again sometime in the near future, I hope. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Balaji. Okay. Bye-bye.